Father, it's an amazing thing that you are a speaking God. Not only are you there, but you're not silent. The heavens declare your glory. And you have spoken through prophets and apostles and given us words, O Lord, in the Bible, right from your mouth. That we might, any time we open the Bible, hear you speak. And God, we're reminded of what your son said and left for us to understand. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So this time, Lord, of the preaching of your word, and any time we come to study your word, we are coming to get life. We're coming to live. We are saying that bread is not enough, however necessary. We, we need the, the living bread. We need the bread of life. We need your word to sustain us and to fill us and to guide us. And without your word, Lord, we starve. We perish. And it may be that even this week, Lord, coming to this moment, uh, some of us have neglected your word and, and we are feeling the hunger pangs. And it may be that some of us have neglected the word for so long, we no longer feel the hunger pains. We are starving, and that's a new normal for us. And so we pray, feed us. Feed us by your word. Grant us understanding of your word. Fire something in our souls, we pray. Ignite us and use us. Guide us by your word, we ask. Let us see you in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in this series that we've called The State of Our Union. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're in the fourth of a five-part series here. And uh, we are basically, as Dennis said earlier, walking through our core objectives as a church. Uh, those are what we call our five M's because they each start with the letter M. I know that's real clever, right? It's the message of the gospel, mercy to our neighbors, uh, seeking to multiply is what we'll talk about this morning, uh, missions to the ends of the earth. And what's the fifth? I left out one. Maturity, shepherding each other to maturity. All right, see, that's getting in the heart. I like that. Shepherding each other to maturity. Now, this morning we're going to talk about our effort to sort of multiply. You know, we like Bebe's kids, right? Some of y'all old enough to remember that. We don't die, we multiply, right? That's what we're up to as a church, is, is we're seeking to see the gospel go forward and to see it replicate itself in the lives of other people. In other words, the gospel was not meant to be preached until it reached us individually and then just bottled in our hearts. We're meant to be not a cul-de-sac, but a thoroughfare. Gospel's meant to pass through us on to others as well. Now, we're going to be talking about leadership and church planting, but I, I want to draw something out very explicitly right at the beginning. There's this relationship between leadership and the gospel such that one really makes little sense without the other. It doesn't do you any good to join a church, air quotes, church, with leaders who do not preach the gospel. Amen. That's just going to be a slow death. Amen. And it doesn't do you any good to join a church where the gospel is rightly understood and can be articulated quite clearly, but there's nobody there to lead in the propagation of the gospel, in the spread of it. What we want, and what I want to sort of draw out for us as a principle in the text this morning, is what we want is both of those things. We want godly leadership and gospel proclamation. That is the joining of those two things, the, the, the sort of power of the gospel in the vehicle of the leadership in the church that leads to the spread of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. And in an odd sort of way, the gospel by itself is insufficient. Now again, that sounds like heresy to some of us, but it is. It's a lifeless thing. 
if it's not in the hands of godly people. This is part of what Paul means, I think, in Romans when he says, how can they hear unless there's what? That's right. And, and how, can, how can a preacher sort of preach to people so they can hear unless they're what? Unless they're sent. It's an argument about the necessity of leadership, of gospel preaching leadership, in order to make the gospel itself effective. And that's what we want to see in the text. But before we turn to the text, let's just sort of spend a word on the gospel. You may be here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. Or maybe you have the vague sense that you are not at all hostile to Christians, but it's not something that quite belongs to you. Maybe others think of you as a Christian, but in your best moments alone, quiet, you kind of doubt that you are. I want to invite you to become a Christian this morning. And I want to tell you precisely what that means. I want to invite you to call upon the Lord to do a miracle in your life this morning. If you're not a Christian, the Bible says you are dead in your sins. Now, dead people can't do anything for themselves. They must be raised to new life. And that's precisely what God does for us. That's what he did for me. That's what he did for all of us this morning here who are Christians. We were dead in our sins. We were going about our lives living quite independently from God, maybe with a nagging suspicion that we didn't really know God or belong to God. And then one day we heard this message that God loves us, that we were made, get this, in his image and likeness. That means every human being you ever have seen reflects something of the character of God and was made that way so that they might know God and enjoy him forever. But it's our sin that has separated us from God. And it's our sin that has made God angry with us. And it's our sin that will bring us God's judgment unless we escape our sin. Now this whole book, the Bible, is about how God made a way of escape for sinners and how God raises sinners from that spiritual death to eternal life. In short, God sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, to take our place, to take our place in everything, beloved. So he comes and he lives a, a perfectly sinless life for 33 years. That's to take our place in obedience to God. We did not obey God. We disobeyed God. We, we sometimes took great pleasure in disobeying God, didn't we? And Christ came and gave God what we owed him, obedience. But not only did he take his, our place in obedience, but he took our place in death too. Why death? Here's why people die. Because God pronounced a curse on sin. That those of us who sin the consequence of that sin would be death. Not just physical death, but a spiritual death too, where we are separated from God forever and condemned and judged in hell. And so Christ takes our place in death. He dies on the cross, receiving God's punishment that was really meant for us. He's receiving it in our place so that we won't have to face that punishment. He gives God our righteousness and he gives God his life in our place so that if we put our trust in Jesus and turn from sin, we have a brand new life with God. We are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are reconciled to God, and we have the promise of living forever with God in his kingdom. That's the gospel message. That's what this whole book is about. That's what a good church exists to teach and to make plain. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, we can think of nothing more important for you to do than even in the rest of our time this morning, be praying to God and calling out to God, asking him to forgive you of your sins, asking him to give you grace to turn away from your sins, and asking him to give you grace to put your complete confidence in Jesus as your Savior and your God. And if you want to have more questions about that, see us after the service. Talk with the friend who brought you. We'd like nothing more than to explain to you what it means to follow Jesus and to receive this gift of life. Now that's the gospel. And beloved, the church exists to spread that gospel. 
to make this Jesus who saves known to the entire world. And what we want to consider this morning is the importance and the centrality of two things. Number one, having leaders who make that known. And number two, having those leaders sort of um, um, spread the, the local churches where that gospel is believed and shared and embodied. So as you know, when we're going through this series, we've had the same four points in our outline. We want to talk first of all about the principle. Secondly, about our progress so far. Third, about our plan going forward. And fourth, just an exhortation to keep a biblical perspective on these things. So let's talk about the principle. If I were putting it in one sentence, here's how I'll put this principle that sort of undergirds the notion of, of multiplying. You've heard me say it already, and it's this. Without godly leadership, the gospel in the church will not grow. Without godly leadership, the gospel will not grow and the church will not grow. Or to put it in the sort of positive rather than the negative, the first thing that God does to facilitate the growth of the gospel and the growth of the church is appoint godly leaders. Now, I want to show you that in, in three passages of Scripture. I want to show you that in Jesus' ministry. I want to show you that real quickly in the apostles' ministry. And then I want to show you that in the history of the local church from Acts chapter 6. So if you got your Bibles, remember, we're, we're sort of moving around to different places this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. This is when Jesus has sort of come out publicly as the Messiah and begun his public ministry. He was baptized by John the Baptist in, in chapter 3 and and he's tempted by the, the devil in the wilderness uh, in the first half of chapter 4. Uh, and now he is making his public appearance as a Messiah. Now notice the first thing he does here in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Not, not two brothers, two brothers. <laughs> Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Striking. The first thing our Lord does when he begins his earthly ministry is not go on a preaching tour, is not write a book, seven ways to be highly effective, this or that. He doesn't sort of get on the radio programs and the television outlets. He doesn't seek to have a platform. The first thing our Lord does when he begins his earthly ministry is start to invest in leaders. He calls here these four men to be his disciples. They will become part of the 12 who are known as the apostles. He is going to build a worldwide movement. He's going to build a movement that lasts 2,000 years on down to our day. He's going to build a movement that lasts until he comes back. He's going to build a movement that's going to fill heaven with a number of people who cannot be numbered from every tribe and language and nation and tongue. And he does not begin with a mass rally begins with making disciples, investing in leaders. I love the way Robert Coleman puts this in the book Master Plan of Evangelism. He says, it all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction of his evangelistic strategy. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public, men were to be, the method, be his method of winning the world to God. Coleman points out something striking. He says, if you judge Jesus' earthly ministry by the number of converts, you would judge him a failure. When he dies and is ascended to heaven, there's only 120 disciples in the upper room. By today's pragmatic standards, Jesus would be regarded as an as a utter failure, as a, quote, ordinary pastor. You gather with pastors, the first question they ask you is something worldly and carnal, like, how many are you running? How many you got? I said, man, I'm running out this conversation. I ain't got no time for this. 
I got more than enough to give an account to God for, I assure you that. You see, we're so preoccupied with numbers and bigness and flashiness in the church today that even our Lord would look like a nothing to us. Coleman says this, the first duty of a church leadership is to see to it that a foundation is laid in the beginning on which can be built an effective and continuing evangelistic ministry to the multitudes. This will require more concentration of time and talents on fewer people in the church while not neglecting the passion for the world. It will mean raising up trained disciples for the work of the ministry with the pastor and church staff, as in Ephesians 4.12. A few people so dedicated in time will shake the world for God. Victory is not won by the multitudes. Jesus won his victory with 12. 12 apostles that he shaped and formed for the work of the ministry on whose shoulders the entire church would rest in the beginning. Well, we see that in Jesus' life. We see that also in the life of the apostles. So Christ has been crucified and resurrected and he's ascended into heaven and he's charged his disciples to go and make other disciples. And what's the first thing we see them do in Acts chapter 1? If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26. They're there. It's just before Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and gives them power. It's just after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ. Peter stands up in verse 15 and he speaks to uh, the disciples who are gathered there. Says there were about 120. It says in verse 16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Remember, Judas was one of the 12 who betrayed Christ, took his own life later. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Then Peter goes on to say this, quoting the scripture. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. And so they go into this process of casting lots to replace Judas. What are they doing right there at the beginning? They're shoring up the leadership of the church. They're shoring up the apostolic foundation of the church. And this is the practice of the apostles throughout the scriptures. So Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes to Titus there, planting that church in Crete. And he says, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you would put things in order and appoint elders in every town. That's why he left him there, was to build the leadership of the church that the church might be solid and might grow and the gospel go forth. Or Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says to Timothy, find faithful men, Teach them what I have taught you and teach them to teach others what you teach them. And so there's to be this relay of leadership where we're central to the work of the ministry is this sort of preparing men for leadership, preparing persons to take the reins of the church, to lead the church in the spread of the gospel and in the building of other churches. Not to put too fine a point on it, but if a pastor does not build leaders, he's not doing his job. If you have an eldership that is not growing men for the eldership, they're not growing men and women for the diaconate, they are not doing the most foundational part of their job. And apart from a replicating leadership, the gospel will shrink, the church will shrink, the kingdom will shrink. Well, this is how the early church dealt with things as well. We saw that in Acts 1. While you're in Acts, turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And some people looking at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, see this situation and they think of it as sort of a paradigm for the, the offices of pastors and deacons. Those words aren't actually used in this text, so some people think maybe that's a stretch, but I, I think the pattern is here. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Follow along with me as we read. 
Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, just get some observations here. Get the context here and see why leadership is so critical. Notice the first thing. It's a time of growth. You see that there in verse 1? When the disciples were increasing in number. Anytime you have a growing church, you're going to need leadership. But notice the second thing. It's a time of complaint and potential division. See that there also in verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So you've got this intercultural kind of conflict and concern about mistreatment based upon sort of language and culture. The Hellenists or the Greek widows weren't getting their share of the, of the daily food distribution. But now the Hebrew-speaking widows were. So here's a church on the verge of really tearing itself apart along ethnic and cultural lines. So whenever you have strife and division, you need leadership. That's the third thing. It's a time for collective action. Verse 2. That's what the apostles do. They call the 12. They summon the full number of the disciples. Now, by this point, that's thousands of people. They're having a whole church meeting. They're having a members meeting right here in Acts chapter 6. And all of the members are called to participate. See, growth requires leaders to, to sometimes get their arms around the whole church. Bring the whole church along with them. The more we grow and the more we struggle, the more we need leaders. Notice a fourth thing. It's a time for clarifying roles. You see that there in verses 2 to 5? The apostle says, listen, let's, fix, let's find these seven people that meet these qualifications. Let them take care of the table. Let them distribute food to the widows. And we believe that might be the origin of the deacon ministry. And then they said, but now we're going to give ourselves to the word and prayer, the sort of priorities of, of the pastoral ministry. I don't think it's too much to say that there are actually three offices in this text, the deacons, the, the pastors, and also the church members, because they're the ones who act here to select the seven and to sort of nominate them to, to the pastors here. And I think this is a pretty interesting picture of congregationalism, isn't it? The, the, el, the, the apostles are, are leading out and charting the direction. The congregation is affirming that direction and affirming the, the people who are called. And then you get the creation of the, the sort of diaconate, the laying on of hands, and the, the establishment then of, of a new office and leaders in the church. That's the dance that happens in a congregational church. The leaders lead out, the people affirm, and we act together in tandem in that way. One other thing about this text. It's a time for diverse leadership, too. Every church located in any area of diversity ought to be increasingly reflecting that diversity in its membership and its leadership. And every church that's ministering in an area or in a context where there's strife that breaks out along sort of ethnic and cultural lines ought to, with faith and concern and love, actually enter into that strife to resolve it and to bring peace. That's what we're seeing done right here uh, in this text. There's the breakout between Hellenists and Hebrew leaders, and the apostles say, okay, look, let's, let's organize ourselves in such a way as to, to bring peace again and to make sure needs are met. Uh, and the interesting thing about the list of the seven deacons here is that all but one of them are Greek names. It seems that they took an issue 
that aggravated one sort of ethnic part of the church, called for a godly leadership response, but that response was also applied in an ethnically sensitive way. They called Greek leaders, by and large, to be a part of this solution where Greek persons, Greek-speaking persons, felt marginalized and alienated. That's entirely appropriate, beloved. See the result. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The revival continued because they met that leadership challenge with the development of more leaders and a sort of clarification of leadership roles and got their arms around the whole church, preserving the unity of the church when they were threatened with strife on the inside. So churches don't grow. The gospel doesn't go forth. Unity is not maintained unless you have godly leadership in the church. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so that's why we have this principle. We want to multiply leaders and churches. So a word on our progress so far. How are we doing in this regard? Well, our strategy to date has been to sort of hold as pastors a leadership meeting, a leadership development meeting uh, with persons that, that, that we've invited once a month. So we talked last week about the older ladies group that meets on second Sundays. Uh, on first Sundays, we meet with a, a group of folks who are aspiring to leadership, who maybe feel a sense of call to be pastors or deacons, uh, persons that we think ought to be thinking about that, even if it's never occurred to them. And we do the same thing. We read three books a month discuss those books uh, and encourage those men. They encourage us uh, as we meet together. In the process, uh, we sometimes sort of say, okay, let's, let's narrow the funnel. There are some men here who seem to us closer in terms of their readiness for leadership. Let's begin to meet with them in a more intentional way. And so we have another small group that we lead that meets twice a month uh, with men and women that we are pouring into and thinking very specifically now uh, about our life as a church, our statement of faith, our strategy um, to let them ask questions. And, and we ask questions of them to examine them now in terms of character and sense of calling. And then out of that sort of funnel, the last step is the recommendation to you guys of potential leaders. And so the first person to kind of come through that little churn uh, was our brother Dennis. Uh, and so he's serving us happily now as a pastor, sort of coming along right out behind that churn. From behind Dennis has been our sister Precious, our brother Lloyd. And we're hopeful and prayerful that, that more folks will kind of work their way through that process, informal, organic, natural, we hope intimate and close process of sort of identifying leaders that the Lord is raising up among us. In that process, it's almost entirely about listening. And as pastors, we're listening to four people or four sets of people. First of all, we're listening to the Lord. What is he telling us about each of those persons? Secondly, we listen to those persons. What are they telling us about their sense of character and calling? Thirdly, we listen to each other as pastors. What do we see in these persons individually as pastors? Are we seeing the same things? Are we aware of the same things and, and working through that? And then we listen all along the way to you, the congregation. Sometimes when your pastor asks you, hey, have you... Spend any time with so-and-so? They got an agenda. They want to know what your reaction is to this person, how you are receiving their ministry. If you have any concerns, if just ask informally, you know, have you spent any time with so-and-so? Does your perspective confirm what we think we're seeing? And we certainly want to listen to you when we make a nomination and we have that period of two months where we, we wait before we vote and we call you to come talk with us or to talk with the persons who are nominated. That, that process of talking with each other allows us to listen and to discern what the Lord is doing in those situations. And then we listen to the Lord some more. And if it's God's will, we make that nomination and bring them to you. In all of this, we're trying not to lay hands on any man hastily. As bad a problem as not having leaders is the problem of prematurely making leaders. All right? Both of those to be avoided. So, incidentally, just so you know, as pastors, we don't talk about who's in those groups publicly with you guys. The, the persons who are in that group are welcome to do that. 
uh, that they want to invite their small groups to pray for them or things of that sort, that's fine. We don't do that because we want to leave room for privacy. And we want to leave room for if there's any person, any brother or sister who decides they don't want to go forward or comes to us and says, I don't think I'm qualified or maybe I'm even disqualified. We don't want to cause them any undue embarrassment. So this is not us being secretive to keep you out the loop. At the appropriate time, we'll, we'll sort of make an announcement. This is us just being careful with people's reputations and allowing them in that room to process things with the Lord without the sort of extra eyes at that point. You with me? All right. So pray for that. If you're interested in that, let us know about that. So how's that going so far? Well, let's talk about the sort of uh, progress in terms of multiplying pastors. We began with three pastors and one deacon. Uh, Myself, Jeremy, and Matt were the pastors. Uh, Nick was the deacon, is the deacon. Since our founding, we've been privileged to call three other pastors uh, at one time or another to serve with us. Uh, And at our peak, we had about five pastors and a deacon serving. But since our founding, we've also had three pastors rotate off for different reasons. One to rotate off because of a sort of difference in um, ministry philosophy and, and vision. Another rotate off, praise God, to go plant a church. That's a good way to lose a pastor, right? And another rotate off for family reasons. So currently we're back to three pastors, Dennis, Jahil, and myself, and one deacon, Nick. Now what's the common denominator there? Nick. It's, <laughs> It's Nick who's holding the church together. (laughs) So pray for Nick. Uh, So we need to add more deacons, right? And so here's here's what I'm thinking, things for you guys to pray about. We, we, uh, as said before, have nominated Precious and Lloyd to serve as our deacon of hospitality, deaconess of hospitality, deacon of sound. Um, But we'd love to see us add other roles to that, a, a deacon or deaconess of benevolence. We probably need somebody playing a diaconal role with our community outreach stuff. Um, and so on. So there, there are other roles that we want to see serving the body, protecting the unity, uh, and, and building up the saints. Overall, when it comes to sort of multiplying, these, these two and a half years have been both great success and great sadness. Any church experiencing this kind of leadership change, in some ways, I, I want you to know, this is I want to invite you to pray, in some ways is vulnerable. Right? You, you could be a, a 150-year-old church, and if half your leadership turns over in two years, that's, that's real change, right? That's a real vulnerability. And so we need to pray about this and, and be concerned about this, but not fearful about this, because the Lord also is providing for us in every way that we need. So what about multiplying churches? Well, by God's amazing grace, we planted our first church last year in the Deanwood Lincoln Heights neighborhood. God provided an amazing young man, by name Jeremy, despite the fact that he's a Cavaliers fan. And he provided an amazing financial partner uh, in McLean Bible Church and a couple of other churches that have come along, Church of the Cross and, and others that Jeremy has been fundraising with. And so we have been able to sort of see ourselves in that way replicated within our first two years of life as a church. Praise God indeed. That is That is remarkable. That is remarkable. God has been kind to us. And, and he's been kind to us in, a, in, a, in another way as well. Some of you may have seen some of the articles recently published on the fact that um, basically folks don't support inner city church plants financially. That, that that's a hard road to hope. And God's been kind to us. In, in the partnership with McLean and others, he's provided quite, quite sufficiently for Jeremy in these first three to four years. And Jeremy is out working, trying to build upon that foundation. Pray for the financial provision to continue to to come through where um, the mercy of Christ is is concerned. Indeed, there are three kinds of support we need to continue to offer Jeremy. Prayer support. I hope you get his prayer newsletter, which often has really encouraging stories uh, of things going on there and ways that we can pray for the saints. Financial support. We continue to support them financially and pray that others would continue to partner with them. Uh, And a kind of social support and ministry support. So Jeremy meets with us still in our staff meetings, about every other staff meeting. Uh, Comes to our elders meetings from time to time as well. Uh, Until he has other elders, we are like surrogate elders to him. Uh, encouraging him in that way. 
and we get together with him, uh, he and Tiffany, on a social level to just sort of continue to walk with them and encourage them in that way. And a big encouragement is when you guys partner with Mercy of Christ in their community outreach. So whether it's giving out backpacks for the back-to-school thing or volunteering for, uh, to be a mentor with Daybreak, those things are really tangible and meaningful encouragements to that band of Christians trying to see the gospel go forward uh, in another neighborhood like ours. So we very much, in these next couple years, want to see that church plant well-established, flourishing, and growing. And right now, the most critical need for Jeremy is more pastors, precisely what we're talking about right now. So pray about that and ask the Lord to provide. So that's a quick sort of snapshot of, of our progress so far. What's the plan going forward? Well, I want to talk about this at a couple of different levels as we have been. I want to talk about it at sort of a whole church level and talk about it in terms of individual application questions for you guys. So what's the, what's the plan going forward in terms of multiplying leaders? Well, we're going to continue that same sort of brown paper bag process that we've been using these last couple of years. It's allowed us to sort of get to know brothers uh, and brothers to get to know us well. It's allowed us to kind of seed the DNA of the church a bit more widely into the membership in that way. And so we, we hope that the Lord will continue to use that approach to raise up po- persons uh, to serve in the ministry as leaders. And the goal would be to train and to appoint and retain <laughs> enough leaders sufficient for shepherding the sheep, spreading the word, and planting churches. Well, how many pastors and deacons do you need to do that? How much is enough? Well, we want everyone that God raises up, right? But if I had to give God a number, I'd say at least seven at all times. We'd want at least seven pastors at all times. Again, enough to do three things, to maintain a good balance between lay and staff elders, to maintain our shepherding group model, which we want to go back to, with a ratio of about 15 to 1. That feels about right. And to be able to plant two or three elders with every church that we send off. Right? So that would be the goal. And so the goal in the next three years, by 2021, pray for us to have an eldership made up of seven to ten godly qualified elders, pastors, serving this congregation. And in that same three-year period, pray that we would have five or more deacons joyfully serving. Deacon of budget, hospitality, sound, benevolence, mercy, and outreach, and other things as the Lord raises up. You with me? You with me? All right. We, we going to pray for this? All right. Because stuff don't happen without prayer either. So what about multiplying churches? Well, let me give you a couple of goals and then say a little bit more about the why and the where. I want you to pray that we'd be able to plant at least one other congregation by 2020. In the next five years, God would give us grace to see mercy of Christ established and settled well and to plant another congregation by 2020. And then I want you to pray that God would allow us to plant at least five congregations by 2028. My my, my math ain't right. So that first one, within the next five years, that's 2023. All right? Pray the Lord would allow us to plant another congregation in five years by 2023 and another five congregations in 10 years by 2028. Here's a question. Where will these plants be? And so to show that, I want to answer that. I want to just sort of say, I'm going to be where the people are. I'm going to follow the people. So the first slide I had is a a slide sort of depicting the movement of African Americans from 1910 to the present. You don't have it. Got the slide? This is what's known as the Great Migration. In 1910, 90% of African Americans lived down south. This is why all y'all relatives are from down south. 1910, 90% of African Americans lived down south. Uh, Or excuse me, from 1790 up to 1910. 1910, you start to get a little change. Without any political movement, without any sort of social organization, without any big push, African Americans woke up one morning and decided we're leaving the South. And they moved to the North, the Northeast, and eventually to the West. So 1910 and 1940, African Americans leave the South, and they move up into the Northeast and up into cities like Chicago and New York and D.C. and so on. 
1940 to 1970, the movement continues to, to sort of happen, and they move west to places like California. And this is what you'll see in that, in that next slide. The orange dots represent where African-Americans moved to. The blue dots were places where the, the population was shrinking. And so again, you'll see when you look at the southeast there between 1910 and 1940, the blue dots are all in the southeast. The orange dots popping up along the Mississippi, popping up in the northeast corridor. 1940 to 1970, you see the movements intensify. The darker the orange, the more concentrated the populations are becoming. And then you see the populations moving out west as well. This has been a great movement, six million or more African-Americans over that period of time moving from the south to the northeast and out west. Until you get what's finally called in this next slide, the Bible Belt. I'm sorry, it is the Bible Belt, but as you know, it's also called the Black Belt. So that dark blue region from Louisiana on around the south, up into North Carolina, Virginia, into D.C., Delaware, up into New York, it's often called the Black Belt because this is where the largest percentages of African-American, uh, African-Americans live in the country. Now within this, we got centers of, of concentration, and that has a lot to do with the history of housing policy in this country, the history of segregation and redlining and things of that sort. On uh, the next slide, you'll see these things start to get concentrated. So you got about 10 cities here with the highest concentrations of African-Americans. Detroit, Michigan, 84%. Jackson, Mississippi, down in the south here, 80%. Miami Gardens, Florida, uh, that's about 70 some up, 77%. Uh, Birmingham, 74%. Uh, so you get these sort of centers of concentrated um, groups of African-Americans and African-American neighborhoods. If you're looking at just by total numbers, the top 10 cities by total uh, population are going to be New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Detroit, Houston, Memphis, Baltimore, L.A., Washington, D.C. at 9, and Dallas, Texas at 10. But that's looking at the whole sort of MSA. To plant churches, though, we need to be more strategic. We need to be more concentrated. And so we're looking at the 10 cities that has the highest percentage of African-Americans living in those cities, making up the population of those cities. And those 10 cities are, again, Detroit, Michigan, Jackson, Mississippi, Miami Gardens, Florida, Birmingham, Alabama, Baltimore, Maryland, Memphis, Tennessee, New Orleans, Louisiana, Flint, Michigan, Montgomery, Alabama, Savannah, Georgia. One of the things that also goes along with the names of a lot of those cities is, is sort of entrenched poverty. The Detroit isn't the Detroit of Motown years. It isn't the Detroit when the car companies were at their zenith. Detroit, though it's seeing some revitalization, is still that city that everybody left, leaving sort of entrenched poverty. We've seen Flint, Michigan in the news quite a lot these last couple of years, haven't we? With the water crisis that's still going on there. Great need there. And when you talk about a state like Mississippi, you're talking about one of the poorest states in the country that lags behind almost every social indicator in the country, Mississippi and places in in New Orleans, Alabama, Birmingham. What, what, What I think the Lord has called us to is to be a part of a church planting movement in neighborhoods and cities, predominantly ethnic, predominantly inner city and urban, where up until this point, there's been no real significant church planting energy. If we were to take D.C., for example, where it seems like there's a new church plant every week, and ask ourselves, where's the question, where where are they located? Here's the answer. Everywhere but Anacostia. Everywhere but southeast. Everywhere but east of the river. NAM had a, the North American Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention, had a goal, I think it was in 2014, to, to plant 14 churches by 2014. I think they reached their goal. Not a one of them were east of the river. Not one. And if you just look at church planting networks in general, I think there's this, this kind of worldly, comfort-seeking, convenience-seeking, I don't want to be too harsh, but I think that's what it is, that finds it easier to go to the gentrifying areas of cities and easier to go to areas of city that are sort of up and coming and more affluent. 
And, and, and we think of it in terms of strategy. No, let's plant a church where different populations come together and, and uh, where, where the, you know, that little area can support a church. Well, what that means, beloved, is the areas that most need churches won't have them. They'll have the churches that are already there, doing the best that they can, being faithful. But those existing churches won't receive fresh partnership from new churches with new energy to join that labor. So here's what, I'm, here's what I'm praying for. Here's what I hope the Lord will do. Because we mean to be serious about the spread of the gospel and not the spread of our name. And we mean to be serious about and happy about the spread of the gospel to inner city neighborhoods like our own. But we can't do this alone. And so I want to invite you guys to pray with us about the establishment of a church planting family or network that's focused specifically on neighborhoods that are highly African-American, highly Hispanic, high poverty, high density, high crime kinds of areas. That, that if the Lord would give us life, if Jesus should tarry, and if he would give us resources, we would pour those resources into reaching those neighborhoods. Amen. We do that gladly yeah. and zealously and prayerfully, that we'd have the kind of leadership that would give itself to that kind of activity. Not to the sort of distancing of ourselves of gospel work going on other places. Praise God for that. Not in competition with that. We're trying to correct for an omission. We're trying to add to our vision people who are just so easily overlooked. That should never happen when it comes to gospel ministry that we overlook people. We should never overlook areas. If we're going to reach the four corners and the, four, the block and the four corners of the globe, well, these are corners and blocks that need somebody's attention. I want it to be ours. I want us to pray together for that vision, for that future. So those, those five churches that we plant in the next 10 years, let them be in Detroit. Let them be in Flint. Let us go back down south to Birmingham. Let us go back down south to New Orleans or Miami Gardens. Let us partner with churches that are there, churches who have a heart for those neighborhoods. But let us, let us if God wills, be used to sort of add to the church planting fervor that's come over to church in the last couple of decades, a vision for reaching these neighborhoods. So what do you do individually? That's what we're trying to do as a church. How does this come down to you as an individual member? I just want to ask you four or five general questions for you to pray about and think about and really write a specific plan about to put into action. Number one, I want you to ask yourself, how will I, con how will I contribute to the increase of God's word? That's what we're after. Not the increase of our name, not necessarily after an increase of the size of our church. If the Lord wants to do that, fine. But, but what we really want to see increase is the spread of God's word and the gospel. So how are you going to play your part in that right here in Anacostia and beyond? Who are you going to tell about Jesus? Are you going to start a small group? Are you going to build a relationship with a neighbor? Be specific. Think about that. Number two. How will I pray for my leaders and future leaders at ARC and, and beyond? What's your plan for that? Pray for leaders every Monday when you have your quiet time. Will you pray for leaders in a group, in your small groups? You know, how are we going to pray for the Lord to raise up leadership? Number three, how will I strive toward qualification for leadership? Let me say this. We won't take time to do this, but you read 1 Timothy 3 and read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, and see there what we're to look for in leaders. Things like above reproach, hospitable, self-controlled, not a brawler, not a drunkard, so on and so forth. Out of all of those qualifications, the only one that could be thought of as applying uniquely to leaders, for, for elders, is able to teach. Every other qualification is, is, is applied to every Christian somewhere else in the Bible. So all of us are called to be hospitable. All of us are called to be self-controlled. All of us are called not to be drunkards and, and not to be violent. All of us are called to be gentle and patient. So really what we're seeing in those list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 are, are simply depictions of what mature Christianity looks like. So here's how I would put this to you. 
whether or not you would accept this goal for yourself. By God's grace, will you commit to growing and submitting to the Lord with a goal to being qualified to be a leader? Whether or not you actually are ever called. I think every Christian should, should aspire to be qualified to be an elder or a deacon. To meet those character demands of those roles. Whether or not they, for any number of reasons, serve or call. How will you pursue that? How will you seek that? If we're going to plant churches like this, just to be real, real clear, we're going to all need to grow and we're going to all need to go. So, in God's kindness, we sent out a dozen or so people with Jeremy. Guess what he did at the next members meeting? He added about a dozen or so people. And in my experience, the churches that plant keep growing. And the persons who, the churches that send people out, they see people come. But it's going to mean that we can't be so concerned about how many of these seats are filled here as we are concerned about how many of us take the gospel to someplace new. So we want to pray to grow and if it's the Lord's will, to also go. Last question. How will I support the work of church planting in neighborhoods like ours? Gave you some suggestions where Jeremy is concerned, but some of you are connected with church plants in, in other places. I mean, it took, me, it took me like the strength of 10 men to keep LaShondra from going to Harlem because, you know, she's all in love with Renaissance Church in Harlem. It's like, girl, you, you, this your home. Stay here, you know. Uh, and, and so we, we're connected with church. Matter of fact, LaShondra is connected with churches everywhere. In Miami Gardens, that's where uh, Muche is, the, the brook. Um, so anyway, we're going to make her our apostle of church planting. But... but <laughs> <laughs> so you connect it with churches elsewhere. How will you support those churches and encourage those churches and pray for those churches uh, that are laboring also in other vineyards? Okay, let's, let's bring this to a close with our final P. That's on perspective. So there's a perspective we need to maintain on both the leadership level and the congregation level. So three things on the leadership level, three things on the congregation level, and then we'll be all done. Number one, on the leadership level, the perspective, I just said it a moment ago, we, we need to be committed to being qualified in character. Above charisma and above flash and above social standing, way above any and all of those things is character. So again, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the entire emphasis is on the sort of character of those persons who hold that office. Not, not their influence in the world, not their sort of bank accounts, not anything like that, but whether or not they, they look like Jesus. And so we want, as a church, keep our eyes focused on the Lord's character and pray that it be sort of developed in all of us. Number two, Romans chapter 12 verse 8 says that leaders are to lead diligently. We want to be diligent as leaders. I hate that in the minds of some people, there's this stereotype that pastors only work on Sunday. It's not true of any pastor I know. And if it's true of any pastor, he ain't no pastor. He certainly ain't doing it biblically. The pastorate is not the place to go to if you just want to be in charge and you want to be comfortable. You're going to hurt sheep that way. The pastor is the place to go to when you want to work hard for the Lord and when you want to put yourself in, in the way of the enemy, in front of you, and sometimes suffer the little nipping and the bites of the sheep behind you. It's not a place to rest. It's a place to serve. And so when you look out on the congregation and pray for people who might be leaders among us, don't, don't let your mind get stuck on the person who's most eloquent. Don't let your minds get stuck on the person who just seems to be the most, the most cool. Don't, don't let your minds get stuck on the person who, who just seems to be the life of the party. Let your mind get stuck on the person that you see always working, who's diligent in whatever they're doing, even before they have a role or a title. Let your mind get stuck on the person who's always speaking a word of gospel and, and let your mind get stuck on the person who, who just seems to be growing in character. That's the one the Lord would build the church on. Let's be looking for the diligent, and let's be diligent as leaders. And then number three, in our leaders, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, we want our leaders to be willing and eager in attitude. 
We want our leaders to be willing and eager in attitude. First Peter chapter 5, let me read this, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because you're forced, but willingly as God would have you. It's been my experience that you can find folks who would just be, from a human perspective, seem like they would just be a marvelous blessing to the leadership of the church. And you try to encourage them and to bring them along. But they're leaving scuff marks all the way, right? They're digging in, they're pulling back, you know, they're just resisting and so on and so forth. And I've learned from hard experience to leave them alone. What God wants in the heart is an eagerness, a, a willingness. Now, that's different from thrusting yourself into the ministry. I'm suspicious of that. The guy who just, I got to do this, and you ask why, well, I don't I got to do, well, okay, I'm going to let that bake for a while. But a guy who's just willing, but not grasping, eager, but not usurping, that man or woman is gold. That's what we want in our leaders. That's what we're to look for and to pray for in that way. Okay, so what about us as a congregation? Perspective for us. Three things. Number one, and these are things you're already doing and things I'm just commending to you and exhorting you further in. Number one, follow your leaders. Be glad to follow your leaders. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Hebrews 13, 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul puts it this way, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? So a, a healthy church is full of members who look to their leaders for leadership and, and follow that, that leadership uh, as an act of growth and faith. And verse 17 of Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. A complaining pastor is not good for your soul. A groaning pastor is not a good watcher over your life. Pray for your leaders. Submit to them. Encourage them in their work so their work is a joy and so that that is to your profit and your advantage. And I think I could speak for Dennis and Jahil and myself in saying it's a great privilege to be your pastor. I'm not saying these things as an admonishment. I'm saying these things to continue, encourage you to continue in being who you are. Because number two, here's what you want to keep in mind. Perspective. 2 Corinthians, verses one, verse one, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says this there about his own leadership, and this is our heart with you. Not that we lord it over your faith. So as pastors, we're not like masters of the universe, lording it over your faith and commanding things of you. But, Paul says, we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. Receive leadership from the Lord and work with the leadership of your, of, of, that the Lord gives you because we are working together for mutual joy. So in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the, the writer there seems to be saying, submit to your leaders so that their ministry is a joy, so that they receive joy. Here in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, Paul seems to be saying, listen, this is what we do. We, we work for you for your joy. So the, the walk between leader and people ought to be a walk of increasing, cycling joy. So we give ourselves to each other in hope of Christ building his church. Final thing. Let us again be more kingdom focused than church focused. We want to be more kingdom focused than just focused on this little bitty church here. I love the way one, one brother put it in order to test whether or not we're kingdom focused or church focused. He says, if you're praying for a revival and it happens at the church down the road and not yours, are you happy or are you upset? That's how you know whether or not you've been praying for your own name or for Christ's name. So if there are 10 other churches in Anacostia that blow up and are doing a faithful job of preaching the gospel and making disciples, that's a win for Team Jesus. We want to be excited for that, even if we keep puttering along, being the little 130 or whatever it is of us. 
that's a win for our team. But if we're kind of salty that we're not the sort of great thing in town, we don't have the big name in town, we don't have the, the big numbers, we're not building a, a building somewhere because we want our kingdom to grow, that, that's an indication we need an attitude adjustment. Think about the saints in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, and we'll close on this. They've got there two of the mightiest leaders in the history of the church, Paul and Barnabas. Verse 1 of Acts 13 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, we know as Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And thus began the greatest missionary church planting journey in the history of the world. But could you imagine if you're in the church of Antioch and you've got Barnabas there who's known for his gifts of encouragement, building up the church? I mean, he's like Jahil, right? And you've got Paul there who's going to become the greatest theologian of the church. I mean, he's like Ben, right? And so you've, you've got these two brothers, Barnabas and, and I'm going to say Ben, and Saul, <laughs> Barnabas and, and Saul, you know, two of the, the greatest brothers in the history of that church. And I'm on the teaching team and you're sitting under their ministry and you, Paul is blowing your mind with stuff he's bringing out of the Old Testament and, and showing you how Jesus is the Christ. And Barnabas is just coming along everybody and, and, and building them up. You know, it would be hard in our flesh to say, y'all go. That's so why I don't think it's a mistake that verse 2 says very specifically, the Holy Spirit said to the church. Amen. And you can be sure that the Spirit is still in the business of taking wonderful, godly people and sending them to their next appointment. And that the church will feel that, but the kingdom-minded church will rejoice in that, will lay hands on them gladly and send them off. So, as much as I would like to plan each and every one of your lives the way I want them to go. It's going to be much better if Jesus plans it and sends you. I mean, were it up to me, I'd, I'd have Stephen finish his little PhD, come on back. We'll start a pastor's college right here. He's be, he, see, I got a hallelujah, all right? That, that might be the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I don't know, Stephen. So we'll be planning his life that way as, as much as it were up to me, you know, I, I would have Dennis Washington walk with us until Jesus comes. But I know that brother's burden for the mission field. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the Lord sent him back to Kenya full time. As much as I would love to keep every last one of you, I suspect God is intending to do greater things with us than just allow us to sit together comfortably. There's a gospel to grow and a church to grow. And isn't it an amazing thing that he lets us play some part in it? It's an amazing thing. May God be pleased to give us grace to do more and more for his glory. Let's pray to God. Father, we've been trying to lay ourselves out before you and express hopes ambitions. We've been trying to think of ways in which we need to be stretched to fulfill the mission that you've given us here. So we have talked about reaching the 81,133 persons in Ward 8. The next 10 years, we want each of us to lead someone to Christ this year to help them grow in Christ and to see them and us do it again next year for 10 years until this entire ward has been evangelized and converted. That feels big to us. And we've talked this morning about growing leaders and planting churches. And Lord, we, we desire you to give us Seven more pastors, five more deacons to allow us in the next couple of years to plant another congregation while seeing mercy of Christ established and rooted and successful. 
and to allow us in the next 10 years to plant five more churches in some of the hardest neighborhoods and, and areas of cities around the country. That, that seems maybe to some of us big. But when we think about your majesty and your greatness, when we think about your power, and we think about the way you provide for your people, when we think that the Holy Spirit lives in us and is at work through us, and when we think about, Lord, the miracle you've worked in our lives and raising us from death to life, we realize our prayers are weak and uninspired. Planting churches is not hard for you. Raising up elders and deacons is not hard for you. And though the numbers seem big to us, 81,000 conversions is not hard for you. So God, with faith in your power and forgetting ourselves, with faith in your goodness and not trusting our wisdom, we call upon you, Lord, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can imagine. For the glory of your name, for the spread of your fame, for the building of your church and the salvation of the nations. Do all that we ask and much, much more. Give us leaders who will lean into these things and bring the church along with them. Keeping us unified through strife. Keeping us focused on our roles. Lord, keeping us, keeping us growing the gospel, we pray. Do this for your glory. Do this for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.